Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had another great conversation today, actually a repeat conversation. Um, we've, we've hosted Dr. Jason Lusk before on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely, Preston. A lot of people really enjoyed that conversation that we had, and we thought it would be great to get him back on. And, and he wrote this book, Unnaturally Delicious, and it's a really interesting book that I think a lot of people might want to pick up and read for themselves, but it really lent itself to an interesting conversation. Dr. Lusk is a distinguished professor and the head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. Yeah, and so this book covers you know a lot of really cool ag technology, food science technology topics. We talked with Jason about a few things like golden rice, synthetic meat, production agriculture technology that's really changing the landscape of, of um, you know, farming in the U.S. and abroad. But with that being said, his book obviously goes into a lot more depth on these topics, so we highly recommend checking out the book, too. Yeah, you can find his book, Unnaturally Delicious, on Amazon or in libraries or wherever you get your books. So I hope you enjoy the conversation with Dr. Lusk. Well, Jason, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to have you rejoining us here today. So for the listeners out there, just as a reference, we had Dr. Jason Lusk on episode 77. It's been a couple of months, but we invited him back on here today to kind of discuss a little bit about his book. But to kick things off, Jason, would you mind giving our audience just a quick refresher on um, a little, maybe a little bit about your background and what you're up to today? Sure. I uh, have the same job I did a few months ago. I'm a <laughs> professor and head of the Agricultural Economics Department at Purdue University. I also run a center here on campus, Center for Food Demand Analysis and Sustainability, where we're trying to provide information about what it is consumers are doing in the marketplace and then how that's affecting uh, farmers and the agribusiness system. So the only thing that really has changed much since we last talked, because I got a bunch of students back on campus now, which uh, makes things exciting. Yeah, and as COVID has uh, kind of started to normalize a little bit, uh, it's probably different having students back in the classroom again. It is. You know, last year, Purdue made a big effort to be as in-person as we could be uh, for the last couple of years. But even last year, even though we were here in person, masks were still being worn. And uh, I teach a freshman class of about 100 students. And, you know, it's hard to remember people <laughs> you know, when you're when you're, co you're covered up and they're covered up. So it really is a lot more enthusiasm and excitement on campus uh, this year around. So that's that's been fun. Well, Jason, like Preston mentioned, we really want to talk about your book most of the episode here today. And so I'm just kind of curious, you've obviously had a career, a long career in academia. You've written a lot of scientific papers, different types of things, different types of academic publications. How did you decide that you wanted to write a book for popular consumption? This isn't actually your first one. How did you get started going down that road? Well, you kind of touched on it. In fact, you know, I've written and still continue to write a lot of uh, academic work. Uh, after a while, though, you kind of wonder whether anybody's reading that stuff. <laughs> and I, think, I think people do read it. And I have some evidence that it matters and it gets cited here and there, but it really is, was a question of impact. And you, are, you know, I, at least for me, I was asking myself, am I having the kind of impact I really want to have? And if I had to be frank and honest with myself, the answer was no. And so I just started thinking about ways that I could you know, take some of the knowledge that I've been fortunate to think that I had gained over the years and communicate that in a broader format. So a book came to mind. I had written some academic books, but I thought about a more general popular book. And uh, so the, the first one in that genre was a book called The Food Police, which is really a, a critical take on 
some particularly food policies that um, I thought were either problematic or just weren't weren't going to live up to the hype that had uh, they, as they had been built. Um, but ever, I always, ever since I wrote that book, the book's kind of you know it's negative, it's an argumentative book, and uh, that's you know while I certainly agree with everything I wrote there. You know, in general, I'm a more po- have a more positive outlook on things, and I think hopefully, as your uh, listeners can tell, I you know try to get along with people. I run a big department now, where you know I try to make sure we get along, we can appreciate what what we bring to the table. So that that was the approach I brought into this book that we're going to talk about, and naturally delicious. I really wanted to make sure that I had a more positive accounting of what I advocated for in the food system, and really what I, where I saw promise and opportunities. Yeah, I think absolutely. It's a very optimistic look at agriculture and about how technology can help agriculture to feed the world. Yeah, I think one thing I will say, you know, it's you know always hard to tell how much books get read and that kind of thing, but it certainly opened a lot of doors for me that I wouldn't have had before. Some of that was TV appearances. Um, you know, the big it's hard to get a book published by the big publishers in New York, but if they do, they put a lot of publicity behind it. So you end up doing way more radio spots and um, getting asked to write editorials more so than I would have uh, ever anticipated before. So I think that's been good. And it's been a good opportunity to be able to talk to groups that I would, wouldn't have had the opportunity to had I only stayed in that sort of traditional academic lane. For sure. So Jason, Jason and I are both history buffs, as a lot of the listeners of the podcast know. Um, maybe to kind of level set at the beginning here, especially for the consumers, maybe who are listening to the podcast, could you describe kind of the technology and the history of the use of technology in agriculture? Yeah, well, I, I think the the title of my book is Unnaturally Delicious. And I think that's, I've sort of used that on purpose, that kind of strange phrasing on purpose. And, and that is because a lot of what we think about as being natural in food or ag is really not so natural. In fact, there's been a lot of change in technology used in food and ag over the millennium. So, you know, I think farming itself is, you could think about the technology, you know, going back tens of thousands of years, people were hunter-gatherers. At some point, people started to settle down. You know, we're not really sure exactly what happened, but people started to realize that if they collected these you know, grains that look like grasses and planted them in the same spots. We could we could stay in one spot rather than hunting around and and have more abundant uh, food options that way. And so again, that wasn't natural. That was sort of people figuring things out, trying different things, sort of by accident, learning what happened, and then you can sort of just take it on from there over the years. That we've continued probably at an increasingly accelerated pace to. Uh, improve that those you know genetic gains um, beyond just trial and error to now we have much more precise techniques and technologies. Uh, we've also used those in animals now too, and and, um, and so this is not a new thing. And you know I think most people probably heard the analogy to you know it's not an analogy it's the facts of say even uh, corn. You know the the ancestor of modern corn was about the size of your thumb and it was a pretty paltry looking thing. There are some pictures of what we think it looked like and maybe a few kernels on there, if you want to call them that. And it's pretty amazing now. I mean, these days, you know, a, an ear of corn is going to be about the size of your forearm and have hundreds of seeds on them, if not more than that. Um, and, it, you know, all that happened 
over time. It wasn't, it's not a GMO necessarily, even though we have GMO core now, uh, but a lot of those gains came well before those technologies. And, um, and so, I, you know, we, I guess we could pick any specific example and go through that over time. One particular one I'll mention that I think is, you know, for me was something I didn't know coming to this book. I talked to a wheat breeder uh, when I was on faculty uh, at Oklahoma State before I got here to Purdue and was talking about, you know, GMOs and genetics and that sort of thing. And, you know, he actually pointed out that wheat itself is, is a natural GMO, that it has three ancient ancestors of grasses that crossbred with each other over the years from deep, different species. We don't know how it happened, but you can see it in the DNA. And in fact, uh, wheat DNA has this very unusual structure to it, you know, where, whereas we have this structure of DNA, one side's from the mom, one side's from the dad, that you have this double helix that a lot of us have seen. Wheat has three of those in its genetics from its three ancient parents. Um, don't ask me to say too much more about that because I'm not a geneticist, but I just found that whole concept totally fascinating. And this was, you know, this was, you know, before we had any idea as humans what was going on, <laughs> you know, that these things just happened um, out in nature um, and with us, you know, kind of living around these plants. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable story of what can happen sometimes, even when we don't intend it. Yeah, and you, you referenced that early ancestor of corn, the Teosinte. It's always a, a good day in my mind when we start talking about Teosinte. I, we have a pretty extensive history of corn plot. We've been growing for about five years out here, and I, I love to grow it and to look at it and to show it to students that come through or customers or whoever that might be. So, yeah, I, I share your interest in, in those topics. How much does it does it resemble a corn plant? Does it even look similar? Not, I mean, it looks like it looks like grass, and it uh, it makes little little tassel like structures, more like a tassel than a typical grass flowering structure. Uh, but then it it puts up another node, and it puts puts up another tassel, and then another node, and then another mini tassel, etc. Okay. All the way through the growing season, and then it puts a little seed pod each place. There's a tassel, so it's definitely structured differently. Um, yeah, it, it looks when it comes up, it looks exactly like corn, but um, the the differences start getting in there pretty quick. I think I've read that there's only about five or six major genetic changes between Teosinte and corn. Wow, that's amazing. Another example of that that I found fascinating when I learned it a few years ago, uh, too, was that there's a, a lot of the vegetables we think about, um, whether it's cauliflower, broccoli, kale, Brussels sprouts, all those come from the same ancestor. They're all offshoots of each other that came from just different selective breeding of that same plant, which is really remarkable because they all are very seem very different from each other, but they're just different parts of the plant. One, you know, kale is obviously a leaf. Uh, broccoli is part of the flower, I think. Um, and so it's, you know, it's pretty remarkable what people have done to the plants that we live around over time. Yeah, it, it's really amazing. And that exact example is another one that I like to use when I every once in a while I talk to a group of students at a high school or college class or something like that. And that's another example that I often reference. So I, we're definitely on the same same wavelength here. <laughs> I was just going to say, maybe to reiterate the point of the book, you know, none of those things are quote unquote natural. Like, you know, they happen because of our interactions with the plants around us and we may not think about them as high modern technology, but they kind of were, you know, at the time. And I think it, it just goes to show what so much of what we enjoy about our food system were, were you know, things that didn't exist 10,000 years ago. 
As you get on in your book, you talk about very many interesting things, and we can't cover them all, but we did pick out a few that we'd like to discuss. And uh, one is, you know, you talked about basically the law of unintended consequences. So you have good, well-intending consumers that want to see a change in the way food is produced, say, for instance, cage-free is an example that you talk about in your book. Um, and then, but but there are consequences of those types of uh, decisions or those types of drives. Um, can you talk about that example a little bit and kind of reference some of the things you talked about? Yeah, uh, there's a, a well-known saying among economists, at least, that there are no answers, there are only trade-offs. And I think that's true in a lot of <laughs> ag, too, and food as well. That you, It's kind of hard to have it all. There aren't very many silver, silver bullets. So maybe on the topic of animal welfare that you mentioned, that's one where you know, at first blush, particularly if you're not really involved directly in the production system, the answers seem kind of simple. Like we want egg laying hens to have uh, high welfare. We don't have good lice. And, and so the solutions seem kind of simple, right? Just throw open the doors to the barn, let them run, you know, cage free, free range. And then if you stop and think about it just a minute though, you'll realize, well, it's kind of fun to be outdoors unless it's really hot or it's really cold or there's a hawk flying around, or there's a dog, and then you think, wow, okay, there's some real dangers outside. There are reasons we bring animals inside uh, to protect the, them from some of those elements, just like even as people, we we, we come indoors uh, from time to time. And then you think, well, okay, if they're all indoors now, um, we got some other challenges we got to think about, like um, pecking order. Like, you know, the, this is a real thing when you put a bunch of birds together in a, in a barn that somebody wants to be in charge. And if those groups get too big, the birds have a hard time figuring out which one is in charge and they can re result in adverse outcomes. They peck each other, they, they, they lose uh, feathers, all these sorts of things. And so you think, well, okay, let's maybe put them in smaller groups, smaller cages. Um, and, um, and that's, you know, sort of, and then, then the ability to feed, feed them uh, better and a more controlled diet to make sure their nutritional needs are, are, are being met. So you can see the progression of things that happen over the years, how we ended up, you know, with a system that we have now that, you know, some consumers don't like, um, that they feel like maybe the bird should have more room. Um, but I think it helps to understand how we got there. It wasn't just some kind of like evil people sitting in a room saying, how can we be mean to chickens? You know, it's um, <laughs> it sort of was a, was a progression of these outcomes. Um, and so, you know, now we're at this point, should we give uh, animals more room, more space, let them be cage free. And uh, again, I think it's a tough, tough trade-offs there. You can, you can still have these uh, cage free systems, which are largely large open barns in, in a house, but you do have these problems sometimes, uh, oftentimes without good management, you'll have big increases in mortality. That's kind of like the worst outcome for animal welfare, like dying. That's like the, the, the very worst part of, uh, you know, if birds are dying, that's not a good measure of animal welfare. Um, and then you have these problems with uh, the pecking order that I mentioned and, and other things. So it's a trade-off. You could have, you know, give the animals more room, a little more ability to exercise natural behaviors, but it can come with increased death. It could come with increase in some of these aggression behaviors between birds. And so you got to try to think about ways of managing those trade-offs. And one of the solutions I talked about in the book is a, a, a modified cage, a bigger cage that has some amenities for the birds, some perches some uh, nest boxes where the birds can go back and lay their eggs and with some privacy. And uh, this, this I think is an attempt to compromise 
between those systems provide a higher level of animal welfare, but also do it in an affordable way that doesn't have some of the downsides of just, you know, again, opening up the cages, so to speak. Again, it, 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 no system is going to be perfect, um, but it does highlight the fact that you can make incremental improvements. I think if you uh, are, you know, if you experiment, if you try to do some of the research and understand where the factors driving animal welfare. It's really amazing. There's a lot of incredible people out there that can solve all sorts of problems. So if you if you have a problem like the one you talked about, where you know maybe being locked in a a small cage is not ideal for the bird, but running free is not necessarily ideal either. So really give people, inventors, and and scientists a chance, and they'll come up with a solution that helps with those problems. Yeah, you know, in, in today's day and age, we probably all know people uh, or might be related to people, as is as is the situation in my case, that have backyard chickens. Um, and if you talk to them, you know, that's, they, 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 yeah, so Preston's raising his hand. You know, the, the mortality rate's pretty high if you live in certain areas. You know, they, um, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's, it's low animal welfare, but it's a trade-off there that you, you, you know, those birds in those situations, they are exposed to a lot of predators and, um in weather conditions, and if you're not careful about it, you you know you can certainly lose a lot of a lot of backyard chickens uh, in a in a in a short amount of time. Yeah, we're not the only animals that like to eat chickens. It turns out. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason, in another chapter in your book, you talk about 3D printed food. 3D printers were all the rage several years ago, and you know you know they they definitely have some applications. But when we apply that to food, that kind of seems like science fiction type stuff. It does. I mean, it does make you think a little bit about the Star Trek uh, food replicator. We just push a button and food appears. We're certainly a long way from that at the moment. And um, and I think even some of the enthusiasm around the 3D printed food has you know, waned a little bit in recent years. But I think it's still an interesting concept to think about this idea of being able to um, preload a, a printer with different flavors and ingredients and push a button and, and have and have it produce uh you know, combine flavors in ways that are, are maybe not necessarily intuitive to us to produce something uh, that's tasty. And, you know, where I'm seeing this sort of applied, and I know this is a different chapter in my book, but the kind of um, um, lab-grown meat is an, an area where some of those things are being thought about. Again, we're, we're a long way off from that being a reality. Uh, but I think the thought there is interesting um, in when you kind of mesh it together with some of the personalized nutrition issues or even personalized pharmaceutical issues. I mean, I take a cholesterol pill every day. Um, you could imagine that being incorporated into my morning granola bar that was printed with, uh, you know, whatever other ingredients would be good for, for the particular situations that I face uh, in my life. And I think that's sort of the interesting thing about it is to take this technology. Um, and sometimes you think about technology as, as promoting um, sort of industrialization, like homogenization of food everything's going to be the same like every uh Hershey's kiss looks exactly the same it's not unique anymore whereas you could also think about those using 3d printing as you know now I've got my own printer I, I can use this technology to make something customized for me and I think that's an interesting thing to think about as using technology not not to make foods more similar but to make foods more unique so are we going to see a day when everybody has a 3d printer to make food things in their house, kind of like a microwave? <laughs> um, maybe. Um, I think the one that the other example I talk about 
um, either in that chapter or another, was a scientist that's working with robotics to have uh, robotic arms in a kitchen that are doing the cooking for you. He, he worked with some celebrity chefs, attached all these sensors to the arms of the chefs while they were cooking, and it you know, records all those movements. I think that might be something more possible in the future. That's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, I think that, again, seems a little science fiction-y, but um, I like the idea of that, being able to come home and, you know, literally have, you know, Bobby Flay or Martha Stewart's arms working, you know, their exact movements, at least working in my kitchen while I'm relaxing after a hard day's work. I think that's that's a fun idea. And, and that, you know, again, it exists. It's expensive right now. Um, but but the technology is there. And I think it's really a question of whether you can kind of bring it down to a price point that it makes sense for, for people in a kitchen. It doesn't mean I, I like to cook, actually, but I don't like to cook every day. <laughs> so I think, you know, we're not trying to get rid of people's ability to enjoy things about the kitchen that that you want. It's just that, you know, the, the parts of it that be, can become drudgery over time. Can we make those parts a little easier? And so I, I think that's something kind of fun to think about. There are so many interesting topics that you cover in your book, and, and we probably don't have time to thoroughly do them all justice, but there are a few more that we'd like to talk about. So one is, you know, this could probably be an entire episode too, but just the the golden rice that was developed uh, several years ago. I, it's, been, it's been quite a while now. I don't know the exact time frame, but can you talk about that a little bit as something that has been kind of held up from being used in the public? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so maybe just some definitions here. So what what is golden rice? It's um it's rice that's golden. It has has kind of an orangish orangish yellowish tint to it, and uh, it's been genetically engineered to produce beta carotene. T uh, the scientists took a daffodil gene, um, and so the the rice naturally produces beta carotene, which our body converts to vitamin A. The the thought behind this process is there are many parts of the world where rice is a staple crop. Uh, and it's in, in many of those countries where rice is a staple crop, consumers, people that live in that those societies suffer a lot from blindness, night blindness, because of a lack of vitamin A in their diets. And so, yeah, you can give them a, a pill or a multivitamin, but you have to come back and do it again every day uh, or you know every week or ever so often. And it's a constant you know, challenge there. So the, the thought process is with something like golden rice, you plant the seed once, you have, you know, you replant that seed, it still has the beta carotene in it. So it becomes a natural part of the food supply chain to help solve that, that vitamin deficiency. Um, and I think this is part of a much broader effort. So now these days, it's not even just golden rice. There are um, several uh, other efforts to have high iron beans, for example, mm -hmm. Some of these are not GMOs either. They just have been produced through traditional crop breeding techniques. Uh, one of my former students works in Mozambique with uh, orange flesh sweet potatoes, uh, which is a, another, uh, a, their staple crop there is a white flesh sweet potato, but doesn't have that, that vitamin A that's in it as well. And again, that's uh, traditional breeding techniques to try to bring that about. So the idea is to look at that problem that's out there that where in a lot of parts of the world, there are these micronutrient uh, deficiencies and what can we do to help improve those crop varieties? You know, it's not just all about yield uh, or quantity of food, but what can we also do to help make sure the quality of food is, is good and something that can help people in those societies. You still got, they still have to want it. Um, and, it, you know, I think that's been part of the challenge. I think maybe one frustration I would have in, in them is, you know, with the golden rice, I think it faced a lot of opposition from 
a lot of the folks who are opposed to GMOs. Um, you know, but again, as you mentioned, it's been been out there for probably 20 years now. And I, I find it kind of frustrating because a lot of times those same folks that have been sort of against that technology have said, well, consumers don't want it. I find that very frustrating because they fought tooth and nail to make sure consumers don't even have the choice to choose it. Um, and so I think it's just really within the last year that some countries, I think maybe the Philippines might have approved the ability to plant um, plant the rice, uh, this golden rice for, for public consumption. Um, I don't know on what level it's happening at the moment right now, but you know, in, in, in the consumers may reject it. They may decide they don't want it, but I think we ought to at least you know let people choose. Yeah, that's definitely exciting stuff. Jason, you mentioned the synthetic meat uh, a few minutes ago. I wondered if you could flesh that out a little bit more. Uh, but before you do, I don't know if you saw the news over the weekend. The, I think it was the CEO of Beyond Meat was was on the news. Did you catch that it's, at all? The, yeah, the guy. The nose event. Somebody, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was yeah. Uh, I was texting with some friends yesterday just about that. We're like, well, you know, maybe if you don't uh, have meat, you know, you, <laughs> so that's what happens after a while. Uh, no, yeah, that was maybe a little bit ironic. So I think most... Most people these days are, have seen like the Impossible Food, Impossible Burger, the Beyond Burger, and th those are. Um, we've always had plant-based burgers around. Uh, I think even when I was a kid in the cafeteria, we would kind of wonder if there were you know soybeans mixed in to help bring down the cost. So th there's always been that black bean burgers, for example. So I think what's new about say the Impossible and the Beyond Burgers are really the bringing food science to bear on trying to make these plant-based products taste much more similarly to to uh, beef. The interesting thing about the lab-grown meat, and I would, should say that there's a lot, of, this goes by a lot of different words. Uh, cellular ag is another uh, word people use, clean meat. Um, there are a variety of words people apply to this. But the basic idea is not to try to replicate the taste of meat with plants. It's to actually produce meat without the animal. We still have the body of the animal and the way this works is it sounds kind of like science fiction, but it is technologically feasible. I have seen I have seen this happening in a, in a lab is you can take a stem cell from an animal. And if it's a muscle stem cell, that cell will try to naturally it'll try to replicate if, it, if it's in a healthy environment and it has a lot of nutrients around it. And you get a bunch of muscle stem cells that are replicating. They start forming muscle fibers. And after a while, you've got a muscle and that's all meat is, is our, our muscles. And again, this is technologically feasible. In fact, it, it came out of some research from human doctors that were trying to help uh, human patients that maybe have been in a car accident or something and lost a muscle or you know, those sorts of things. So that, that's sort of where the research originated. And then I think people started thinking, hey, we could apply this maybe to um, produce, you know, animal-based uh, foods for, for human consumption. So, you know, there are some challenges. I think the biggest challenge still at the moment is uh, the, you know, what, what all these stem cells are eating. There's no free lunch. These cells still, ha still, still have to live in an environment where they are getting nutrients. Um, the best way they do that is to feed those cells um, bovine fetal serum. So, uh, you know, that's not animal free necessarily. Um, and there are some substitutes, there are some companies working on trying to provide a nutrient rich environment that these, you know, microbes can eat off of uh, microbes or cells that they can live in and grow. grow. Um, but again, this technology exists. There are some companies that are trying to commercialize it. It's still pretty expensive uh, at the moment to produce. 
um, and by pretty expensive, I mean like think 10 times the cost, you know, per pound of, of meat at the moment. But I think it's really interesting. I mean, I, I'm a, I've, I've spent a, most of my career studying meat demand issues. I do I do a lot of work with the National Pork Board, National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Um, I, I So I, you know, I'm sympathetic to uh, those industries. I have a lot of friends in those industries. But at the same time, it's kind of exciting to think about this new entrance, even though it is competition for those traditional forms of, of meat production. Um, and, you know, we can speculate a little bit about what, what kind of world that might look like if this, these technologies really take, take hold. But what the hope is, what the promise is for some of the folks that are in this lab-grown meat space is to try to produce the product we like, that we enjoy, the taste of, but do it in a way that has a lot less water use and a lot less um, land use and, and fewer greenhouse gas emissions, all those sorts of things. And there's, I'd say this, the jury's probably still out on that, but that's the claim and the hope that some of the advocates of these of these new products are, are making. Jason, I'm curious, and, and maybe you don't have the answer to this, but you talk about those uh, meat being grown in a lab and, and basically the, the cells dividing and creating meat. Now, muscles need work to, to build up. Do they... Do they have a way to work those muscles or is that not necessary in that case? No, it is. And I think that's been one of the challenges is, is if you don't, if they need a structure to grow on uh, and then they need to have some tension to be able to develop the texture that, that we have come accustomed to expecting when we eat these products. Uh, again, I'm not um, intimately familiar with all the details, but you can read in the literature and I've talked to people who talk about these issues, you know, that you know, you, it's not just a vat full of cells. You need you need structures in there. You need you know ways for those um, cells to have to grow and have some tension there. If you want to actually try to replicate uh, the, the, what we what we have come to expect meat to taste like, it's really interesting. The other challenge I talked about this in the book a bit is that, you know if you just grow muscle cells. Uh, what you've got is a really, really lean piece of meat. Like there's no fat. <laughs> and actually what, what we like often when we eat meat is the fat, it's the fat that makes the taste good. In fact, you know, for beef, the quality grading system that we have uh, in, in place at the moment is that you need more fat in the meat to get a higher quality grade. So that's what, what we tend to enjoy when we uh, are eating meat. And that's a whole different process is trying to get a fat cell to grow in a way that it tastes like we would expect it. And then mixing it together with the muscle cells to, to achieve an outcome that's that's what we come to expect from an animal. So, you know, we're a long way from that. And, and even if, you know, it's still, it's still the case today, you know, they're basically trying to replicate a burger. So trying to replicate a steak or bacon, for example, that's a much more complex process that's still, uh, you know, a ways off. Well, Jason, I want to stay on the meat subject here because there's a topic that was in the news a few years ago, but I want to preface before I ask my question with a question for you about food waste. That's a that's a major problem. Do you have the statistics on how much food is wasted in the United States each year? You, there are the estimates vary widely, but one statistic that, that gets thrown around is something like 40% if you include all the farm losses as well. So it's pretty astounding. So, yeah, that's a huge number. And there was a company, you know, you talk about in your book that was trying to basically do something about that because some of the food waste, I mean, companies that are producing food, packing companies and so forth, they want to save as much food as possible. Obviously, anything that's wasted is is hurting their bottom line, but it's also just contributing to this food waste problem. 
So this term got coined by the media, and, and this got blown up a few years ago. We can all remember this pink slime. So, you know, that sounds pretty, pretty nasty. Pink slime, not something we'd want to eat. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, to back up a little bit for folks that you know, might not remember that episode. Um, it was about six or seven years ago. I think this really blew up in the news that uh, a lot of the ground beef that was being produced on the market had this quote unquote pink slime. And this this term came about in ABC Nightly News. There's a big lawsuit about it, uh, about whether they were trying to be inflammatory about it or not. Um, and there were some celebrity chefs that have sort of promoted that framing around this. Um, uh, interestingly, if you Google that word, the most commonly viewed uh, image on Google Google images with that word is not the it's not actually the beef product <laughs> that's in question. It's something I, we don't I don't even know what it is. It's not food, um, but it's something entirely different. So a lot of misperceptions around that. So about that about the time those stories were coming out coming out, I had written a couple of articles uh, or put some posts on my my blog, and one one day I just got a call from somebody who worked for the company who had created this technology. And he said, hey, do you wanna come take a visit of our tour, our facility? And I said, sure, um, that, that would be interesting. I'd be curious to see what you guys are up to. So I was able to go do that and learn a lot about their company. and was really impressed actually by their facility and, and their motivation and, and all that. So so what what were they doing? Um, maybe that's the question. So, you know, you got a big meat packing facility. In fact, their facility is attached to one of the big, big meat packing facilities. Um, and a lot of the, the, you know, meat is on bones. It's got a lot of, you know, fat and muscle around it. The muscles, the part that, you know, the protein that we want to eat. And you've got workers that are trying to carve out the fat away from the muscle. Um, but even after they try to do that, and they try to do it judiciously, there's still some protein, there's still some muscle in there that's hard to get to. And it's really not worth the effort to pay a worker, um, you know, however much they get paid an hour, 15, 20 bucks to go through and try to get every last piece of protein off of that. So in the end, what you have is what ends up happening then is you, you discard that protein it either gets, you know, um, you know, rendered fed to an animal or, or thrown out used in lesser value uh, products. But I guess over some over a period of time, they thought, well, how can we make more productive use of this of this protein that's going to lower valued uses or in some cases being wasted? And essentially the process they used is they realized that they heated it just a little bit, they could the fat would start to melt and they would put it in a centrifuge. And in that centrifuge, you could pull away the fat from the protein. Um, and then then what you've got is, you know, then you've got the protein that you wanted after all. And this process and the protein, and they that that's uh, the the part that became known as this pink slime. Um, the other thing that was a little bit controversial is they used ammonia to um, to make sure there was no microbial contamination of that of that protein. wasn't a necess wasn't necessarily a necessary part of the process, but it was something they felt they were very passionate about food safety. And one of the things that impressed me when I visited their plant was really how clean it was and uh, how modern it. It was compared to a lot of other, you know, frankly, other other food facilities I had been in, and, and they had a lot of passion around the, the food safety aspect of it. And so, you know, the amount of ammonia they used was well within like normal food safety standard norms that that you use there. But this, you know, what would happen then is you have this pure protein, and then they would sell that to ground beef manufacturers. You would mix it in with normal ground beef, and it was a way to bring down the cost of ground beef, but also this is protein that had been 
um, been saved, so to speak, that would, wouldn't have been wasted or gone to some lower value use otherwise. The other interesting thing, I didn't know this at the time we wrote the book, but we did some research later, is um, we did uh, blind taste tests with consumers. Actually, consumers prefer, they either can't tell or prefer uh, burgers that have been mixed with this, like the, 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 sign, the more accurate term is lean, finely textured beef. Um, and the reason is it does slightly make the a burger more tender. Um, Interesting. And so it's also a way to bring down the cost of uh, low fat or uh, yeah, lower fat burgers. So you, you'll, you'll notice if you go in the grocery store, if you try to buy the 90% ground versus the 80%, the 90% is going to be a lot more expensive. Um, so it's also a way to bring down that price point of that 90% lean uh, because you're using product that, that's almost per perfectly lean in that process. So I think this was just an example where, you know, the framing really, you know, how that product got framed had a big impact on consumers' perceptions of it. It got framed as like an, almost like an adulterant in ground beef. It got framed as this foreign substance. Um, whereas I think, you know, an alternative framing is that it, it helped save food waste, that it brought down the cost of, of lean meat. And, um, and so, yeah, anyway, I think that, that that's one that I, I think, again, I can understand why consume, some consumers, given what they had been told about the product, reacted the way they did. But I think if they would have been in possession of a broader set of facts, that, that there might have been a lot more nuance around that story. Yeah, I think that's, you know, we, we actually talked about several examples now here today of where maybe the consumers didn't have 100% of the information or the exactly factual information. I mean, we we started off talking about the cage-free, you know, and, and some of the trade-offs there. And, and we talked about the golden rice. And now we talked about the lean, finely textured beef. We talked about this the last time we talked to you. But there's a disconnect, right, between consumers and producers a lot of times and others involved in the ag industry. So how, you know, just again, you know, maybe to reiterate, how can people that are interested in ag innovation how can they influence the public perception of these technologies in a positive way? What you can do is do what I did and write a book about it. <laughs> Try and hope, <laughs> hope sometimes people will read it, I guess. Um, I think the other thing, too, is, I mean, I think the way I hopefully have framed all these, even in our conversation today, is that, um, you know, None of these are things where you say, you know, consumers, you have to, you have to eat this, or this is what you have to do. But we're just trying to expand the opportunity set for consumers um, and help people make choices, you know, with the best information they can. So this is not about trying to force people into a set of of choices or consumption habits, but rather, you know, trying to give people options. Um, and so I think that's one important framing for people to bring to these. I think sometimes. Uh, when you talk about ag technologies, there's a point of view like, well, we, we're not going to be able to feed the world unless we use GMOs. And even if that were true, it's not a useful framing because a good way to get somebody up on there, you know, uh, to react against you and say, well, you got to do this. Um, and so I think it's more, yeah, I think it's more useful to talk about trade-offs. If we don't do this, here are the consequences for price and maybe food insecurity in other parts of the world. Um, so I think that's it. And I think, you know, what I tried to do in this book, and that's maybe what I would encourage folks to do too, is to talk about the motivations of the people creating these technologies. Is I think sometimes people think about technology development and food and ag, and they some, sometimes people think about like kind of big corporate involvement or big food or something like that. So it, it's easy to sort of vilify these, you know, corporate involvement in food and ag. But I think in, in 
virtually all the examples that I used in in the in this unnaturally delicious book are, you know, I can start with the scientist. What were you trying to do? Um, what was your motivation? Um, or the innovator or the entrepreneur? And almost always, they they wanted, of course, they wanted to make money, uh, but they also had some passion. I wanted to help solve food insecurity. I wanted to help reduce food waste. I wanted to improve the safety of food. I wanted to have better tasting food. You know, I wanted to reduce environmental impacts. Um, And I think if people sort of understood that what, what a lot of those innovators are attempting to try to accomplish, it's actually comes from a place most people totally buy. They totally are on board with. Yeah, it's really interesting because you talk about big egg or, you know, in quotes or whatever it might be. And, and people maybe oftentimes have a poor perception of, of big corporations, but having spent a career in working for big corporations, I, I can, I can attest to the fact that the people that are there at those corporations are exactly like you described. It's a, it's a lot of people that really want to make a difference. And they think this is one of the best places that I can be to make a difference. There's resources here. I can pursue science. I can pursue things that help people. And this is an avenue for me to do that. And and there's all kinds of people that, that are in these corporations that, you know, it, it's not a faceless monolith or, you know, whatever the, whatever the perception might be. No, I think that's right. And I, I think every, all of us, for one form or another, you know, y'all are hosting this this great podcast here. I think all of us are trying to make a difference in the world and make make the world we live, live in better um, in our own unique ways. And I think that's that's true for people that are, are working in corporations, true for people that are working in, you know, government and non-government organizations. And um, I think people can make a difference in all those different ways. Um, it does, you know, it doesn't mean we don't screw up sometimes. It doesn't mean there aren't some people that have uh, ill intentions, but I, I do think that um, understanding the motivations of the people behind these innovations is a key selling point for folks to help understand where they come from. Well said. So Jason, last last episode we ended with, um, we asked you, what excites you the most about the future of ag? I wanted to ask a similar question to close today. So I wanted to ask what technological advancement has the greatest potential to reshape agriculture in the near future from your perspective? Yeah. Um, you know, one of the holy grails that's sort of out there, I suspect folks in your company are working on it, is if you could get corn, for example, to fix its own nitrogen, um, that would be a pretty incredible improvement. You know, farmers right now have been struggling because fertilizer prices are, are, are very high. On the environmental side, people worry about nitrogen runoff in waterways. Uh, it's one reason we grow a lot of soybeans in this country is because they can fix nitrogen um, in the soil. And it's something we can rotate with corn that, that puts uh, nitrogen back in the soil uh, in a in a more, quote unquote, natural way. And so that that's the kind of innovation that I think if, it, you know, if it could be pulled off and other people working on that kind of thing in different ways uh, would be pretty darn amazing. <laughs> so I think that's that's one that I think would be really interesting, exciting. Again, I don't know, you know, that may never happen, but that's not outside the realm of feasibility or you know possibility. I think that's one that's that's really fun. Um, I think Hi, people are really. Yeah, go ahead, Jason. I, I was just going to say I totally agree with you there, and I'm going to put in a shameless plug. Back in way back in plug. episode 35, <laughs> we spoke with Alan Bennett from UC Davis, and they've identified a bacteria that can uh, work together with corn to fix nitrogen from the air. So it's not 
necessarily something that's right on the cusp of, of being a reality, but the concept definitely in science is there. It's just bringing it to broad acres. Yeah. So that, that's what, and then, you know, I think a lot of the examples I use in my book are things I still think are very interesting. The synthetic biology, uh, we didn't talk a lot about, but this idea that you can genetically engineer yeast or bacteria to produce interesting things, um, flavors, for example, um, uh, but a lot of the other things that we enjoy about our food system, we can produce possibly through fermentation processes. Now, all, that, all those, I still have to remind people, all those yeast and bacteria still need to eat something. Uh, and probably that's going to be corn, starch <laughs> or sugar. Uh, so it doesn't mean corn goes away. Um, but it it is the idea of improving the efficiency of the system that I think uh, could could be, you know, very interesting. So those are some of the, the ones that I think I think a lot about as being being very interesting. Well, Jason, thanks again for talking to us here today. It's always a great conversation. We really enjoyed talking about your book, Unnaturally Delicious. And uh, we encourage all of our listeners to go out there and pick up a copy. Where can they find those on Amazon and probably some other places too? Yeah, pretty much anywhere you can buy books, hopefully should have it for sale. So Amazon, um, Barnes and Noble, any of those places should ho hopefully have it for sale online. And you shared the last time, I think you're you're also willing to interact with people if they want to reach out to you directly. Sure. Yeah, you can um, actually just the easiest way to find my contact information is to go to my blog, which is just my name, J-A-Y-S-O-N-L-U-S-K.com. So uh, got my contact information. You can normally see whatever it is that's on my mind that, that week or so. I'll put something on my blog. Thanks for your time, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Thank you all for having me. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.